Welcome to the Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, very special episode. Yeah, we just recently celebrated our 100th episode, and we figured with the new year coming up, it would be a great time to go back over some of our favorite segments from the year and some of our greatest hits at the Lost Debate so far. So let's start with what was probably the most heated debate we've ever had. It was actually yeah. so heated that some people in my life were like texting me like, are you and Ricky okay? Oh, I really? sure are listening to you fine. There was the lost debate. Yeah, it was the only time I've listened back and been like, I sound a little agitated. So sorry, we're okay. Well, I think <laughs> I often get accused of cutting you off. That was one where I think you cut me off yeah, more I than I cut you off. Sorry. This is our debate about Edward Snowden and all the ethics of his release of documents and the question of his residence in Russia and all of that. And, you know, we spent a lot of time listening to and reviewing other people's debates on this subject. And I have to pat ourselves on the back. I think we stood up really well. Yeah. We, we, we went through it all. Edward Snowden uh, made big news back in the Obama administration by releasing potentially as much as many as 1.7 million files, at least to journalists back then, and at least or upwards of 7,000 of those documents have been uh, reported on and released by the journalists that he handed those documents over to. He initially went to Hong Kong and then wound up in Russia, where he's been for quite some time. And mm -hmm. we just got some news, Ricky, that he has become a citizen of Russia. And I think this is an opportunity for us to, you know, dust off some of these stories about Snowden and say, all right, Snowden, hero, villain, something in between. Where do you come out on this debate? I think I come out um, on the hero side pretty cleanly. Um, I, I am very sympathetic to his reservations with coming back home. But I think that this news breaking that he is a Russian citizen, especially right now, given everything that's going on in the world that we all know about, is like being used to dismiss him in a way that he, he must be a tool for some enemy. But I think it's really important to remember that he flew to Hong Kong with these files. He handed them to journalists to disseminate. He never released one on his own. He gave them the condition that they could only do it if it was in public interest, not just because it was newsworthy or exciting or salacious. Um, and then he just was trying to get to Ecuador, um, which Ecuador had given Julian Assange refuge in their, um, in their embassy. And so he in that process was in a layover in Russia when the American government invalidated his passport. He couldn't leave. He got stuck in the terminal. He did not choose to be in Russia. And he's staying there because he feels like he will not be given a fair trial in the U.S. And they have given him refuge after he was trapped for weeks in this airport. Um, so I just I would I would like to just kind of put a little asterisk next to the fact that he's a Russian citizen, because right now the optics look really bad. But he is there because of very extenuating circumstances and not by his own design. I think that's really important to lay out at the front. Yeah, I, I, I'm not, I don't think it necessarily needs to be a binary, right? Like hero villain. I, I think it can be complicated, but I'm very much on, on the villain side of things here. Mm. You know, that might be a strong word, but I would say not hero. Uh, is where I am on him. And, and one reason is because of the proportionality here. The guy handed over 1.7 million documents or upwards of 1.7 million documents. He says that it's not that many. Um, that's a government estimate. Let's I don't, pretend I, it's I don't know. Thousand. But yeah. it's in the thousands. Let's, it's certainly yeah. well in the thousands. Yeah. It, at the very least, hundreds of thousands. But it's, it, is, it is a lot of documents. Uh, mm -hmm. He admits he didn't read all the documents, obviously. And to me, mm -hmm, he, it's, it's semantics to say, all right, it's... I handed it to journalists. I didn't hand it, you know, I didn't just release them. Like when you're talking about secret I don't think documents, that's semantics at all. Well, when we talk about, for instance, Trump, right? Like we, we generally agreed it was inappropriate for him to keep top secret documents in his house. Now he didn't quote unquote release them, but at the moment that documents become unsecure, especially this many documents, you've compromised everything in those documents. The US government essentially has to say at that point, all right, anything in here, especially when you're in countries like Hong Kong and Russia, like anything at this point, you have- When he have when he left Hong Kong, he destroyed all of his personal accesses to those records. So since he's been in Russia, he doesn't have this like database that's just floating around with him. Everything that he released is in the hands of journalists. So first of all, like everything, we have to take his word for it, right? Now he's a guy who says, don't take the government's word for anything, right? Which in a way I'm sympathetic to that now, but somehow we have to take his word every time he says he's destroyed documents or not. I, I don't trust one person, an unelected official who 
shouldn't have had his hands on all these documents to begin with and actually in some way stole people's passwords to get them to tell us that he's destroyed them. But let's let's say he did destroy them in Hong Kong. He accessed them in a hostile foreign country. He also handed them over to multiple people. And some of those people have shown themselves to not be very credible with like the sanctity of information he gives them. He even accused Barton Gellman, one of the people he handed documents over, of compromising Snowden himself by sharing one of the aliases that he was using online. So these are people who like we shouldn't be trusting with secrets in the United States government. There's a proportionality piece here. Even if we agree that, which we can have that debate, like let's say he did expose some things that were illegal, right? There are a lot of things that were legal that he released into the public domain uh, explicitly. He didn't release out, any of them ex- into the public domain personally, though. That was explicit- all... Well, he he demanded of at least Gelman that Gelman uh, report on the prison program, right? Now, the prison Which program includes hugely important. Yeah, but the prison program includes legal spying on foreign enemies, right? So, like to me, this is a guy who demanded that we release information about how we're spying on foreign governments, which is totally legal. Did he demand that he they release all of that information, or that they release what's per? that they release what's pertinent to the American people. See that? Because is, there's... Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure. That is a critical question but, because there, I mean, there, they only publish 7,000 files. And if it's 1.7 million, as some estimates say, those were picked and, cho- and chosen on the basis of what is most pertinent to public information. And I think it, to give him, to give him like some fairness here, let's talk about a few of the things that we learned because of him that we would not have known otherwise. And that I think personally completely have changed the conversation about privacy since then and put it all on our radars, including the fact that every major telephone provider in the United States was giving the NSA phone records of American citizens. PRISM was allowing them backdoor access into our personal data. X Keyscore was letting the NSA search, quote, nearly everything a user does on the internet if they so choose. Um, They have techniques to bypass encryption. The NSA was doing offensive hacking operations. They were collecting 200 million text messages worldwide in Dish Fire, spying on dozens of foreign leaders, intercepting every single phone call in the Bahamas and Afghanistan. Can I pause for a second? That's the NSA's job. Like, the the NSA's job is to spy on foreign leaders. Okay, Okay, taking every every major telephone provider was giving the NSA access to Americans' phone records. That is so the, completely inappropriate. There was a legal action that he exposed, which he exposed just by allowing journalists to expose it. He didn't even make the editorial decision here because he was not capable of doing that as a 29-year-old, but he saw that Americans' constitutional rights were being violated. He realized that that was something that the public did not know. He realized that he was not the, the person with the authority to say, I am going to just dump so, this out there like Julian Assange. And so he went to the press to do that. Well, give me a second on this one. So uh, first of all, the metadata program, they took phone numbers. They, what they got access to is the phone numbers and the duration of phone calls, right? Now, mm-hmm. uh, people love to cherry pick which courts are saying this is legal and illegal. At least 15 courts ruled that this program was legal. U.S. also reauthorized the program. After in 2015, they reauthorized the program with some reforms. In 2018, the Office of the, Office of the Director of National Intelligence admitted that after that was passed, the U.S. is uh, collecting three times as much data as they were before this so-called reform that, that Snowden is somehow responsible for. So like now we've released all these documents, right? Let's, let's agree to disagree agree about what release means as somebody who you know who used to have a top secret clearance if i hand over thousands of documents 1.7 million potentially documents to a reporter that means that everything i've handed over we can all agree the u.s government now has to assume that that information could get in anybody's hands i think anybody can agree on that now what did those reporters report on they reported on a whole bunch of things that we all know are legal Emails that the U.S. is accessing, emails of the mullah in Iran, emails, text, voicemails of the Taliban, right, that we're spying on foreign governments, including our friends. So what? That's what the NSA is allowed to do. It's actually in their charter that they're supposed to be spying on foreign governments and people. Uh, and there's a ton of reporting out there that this put 
United States national security at risk. So the New York Times itself, which participated in the reporting of this, uh, in an article reported that ISIS ha has explicitly talked about how they've changed their patterns of communication for this. And this was confirmed by three separate private security firms mm -hmm. who all looked at ISIS and Al-Qaeda's communications after the Snowden leaks. And you don't even have to take the private security firm's uh, word for this. <laughs> you know, there's, a, there's apparently a jihadist propaganda organ uh, published by Al-Qaeda. And in March 2014, they came out with an issue where they just stopped after the Snowden release, stopped talking about the encrypted technologies that they're using. So it's very explicit. And you don't even have to take their word for it. Greenwald himself has said, he quote, he published, quote, basically the instruction manual for how the NSA is built. And he said it would allow somebody who read them to know exactly how the NSA does what it does, which in turn would allow them to evade the surveillance or replicate it. Now, that means that those are the foreign enemies of the United States who can replicate our surveillance capabilities. To me, that's treasonous. The New York Times published that article about how their own article was being used by by Islamic extremists. Like, I think it's important to realize that they made the editorial decision to publish this. Yes, Snowden made the decision to give them that option. When he handed over the documents, he he expressed a desire not to have them all released. Um, and they have not, thousands of, of documents have been kept because they were either showing legitimate action or they've been dangerous. But I would say I completely agree that some of the journalistic actions here were certainly questionable, um, went too far. But I would remind everyone that journalists here in, the, in this, over the Snowden situation, got a Pulitzer Prize. The documentary maker that followed him around got an Academy Award. And this guy published zero documents himself. And now he's in Russia, cannot come home because he doesn't feel like he'll face a fair trial under the Espionage Act, which I think is a completely let's fair talk about that. Yeah. situation. And, yeah. And let's talk about that. And let me clarify one thing about the Greenwald thing. The last thing I said, which was that it would allow anybody to replicate our, the NSA's capabilities. He was claiming in that point that he was holding back some of that information and not publishing so I he was be holding back a lot and most of the critics actually most this, of the like have you read it like when he published this stuff it talks about the the methods the u.s uses overseas to collect secrets on our enemies right like i don't understand mm -hmm. what the and on some of our allies as well though so snowden and greenwald and we could take them all as a group they didn't start the debate they ended it like the minute you put that information into the public domain, you end the debate about whether the U.S. can do it or not, right? You decide as an unelected person, as one person, I thought we didn't want, you know, to, to put all this power over national security and our secrets in the hands of one unaccountable person. And somehow Snowden takes it upon himself or maybe him and Greenwald and Poitras and Barton Gelman, four people get to decide what millions of documents, including that, you know, tons of people potentially, uh, you know, their safety is at risk, their their livelihoods are at risk. They've put in tons of time as as public servants in the United States to try to keep us safe. And they unilaterally decide, as a you could say it as a group, not just Snowden, that that they're gonna take it upon themselves to release things, many of which are illegal, most of which are legal. So to me, that's a Who's, problem. Okay, but but I, I would genuinely, I'm asking, is there an example of someone who was working on behalf of the U.S. whose safety was put at risk as a result of this? Or or is there an example of a terrorist plot that was going to be foiled that wasn't? Like, genuinely, I'm asking. Because I I feel like if, if, the, if that was the case, if there were huge things that we fumbled as a result of this release, that would have been made public and put everywhere. And aside from this very legitimate concern that we have from ISIS of, or from the Islamic State that they were utilizing some of the methods that were published. I haven't heard this frontline, like, now the NSA dropped the ball on this because of Snowden. And I expect that we probably would have heard that considering how much chatter there is around him. Like, I, where are the concrete examples of all of the terrible things that happened on a national security front? I'm sure there are some, but they're all kept private. We can't know that as public individuals, but we do know now that there was clearly illegal activity happening that was probing into Americans' private lives with new technology that was unprecedented and and a, a, just the scale of, of surveillance that ways. we could never have imagined. I know it goes both ways, but, but you, I also but, think... But yeah, let me explain what I mean by that, though. It, it goes both ways. Name a specific person 
whose uh, you know whose life was destroyed because the U.S. government was using these techniques, right? Well, like, I think that they weren't because now we know and we had a public conversation about it that's lasted almost a decade now, and we but even may have never them. understood that. We but, like, we may have never understood that. Take it from pre-2013. Who's the person whose life was destroyed in pre-2013 that wasn't like an Al-Qaeda leader? I'm sorry, is it Angela I mean, it's Merkel? American. Why, why are all American citizens getting pulled up with private companies being utilized as a mechanism to, to collect data without Americans knowing that? Like, I don't see the case for that. But American citizens don't seem to care. 2015, after two years after the stuff all. was released, let me give you some data on this. 2015, two years after the the stuff was released, 82% of Americans say it's acceptable to monitor communication of terrorists, 60% leaders of other countries, 54% leaders of other countries. Most were not concerned about the government monitoring their own digital behavior. And we know this because nobody true. cares. The US tripled. No, 57%. And that same data, 57% said it was unacceptable to monitor US citizens. That's not, they said that's the majority somehow, who say it's yeah, but unacceptable. Both those, but both of those data points are true. So people say, the majority of people say in the abstract that it's unacceptable to monitor US uh, the communications of Americans. And that gets to my point that there was a targeted way to release this. You could have had that debate. There was a didn't. targeted way to release he, he it. And I, would, it I wish the, the journalists had that debate. I wish the journalists yeah. had that debate. And I wish that a 29-year-old man who did not ask for all of this to drop into his lap, who realized that there was illegal activity going on, was not now being treated as this terrible traitor on the basis of the journalistic principles and mistakes that that other people made. I mean, but, I just, I just can't. Yeah, but he's responsible that. for that. He's, a, he's, he, he takes it upon himself to be the civil disobedient. By the way, when, when people were were sitting in at lunch counters, they didn't run away from the police. They took consequences for their actions. Somehow, we're saying he's a civil disobedient. He, whether the he wanted to get to Ecuador or not, and the charges, the charges against he, him under the Espionage Act would would allow him to be charged without a proper jury trial, without the defense of his cause in the public interest. That. He, is not a fair trial. That is that is just simply not a fair trial. And the Espionage Act since World War One has been used to to jail anti-war activists, to go after socialists. It's not fair to have a closed trial and to strip him of his single defense, which is that he broke the law to do good. There's no there's no case of whether this is legal versus illegal. Clearly but what wh- he did was illegal. The question is, is it right or wrong? And if the jury can't listen to his his motive defense, then they then he's going to jail for 30 years and I don't blame him for staying in Russia and I support but his he decision. becomes in that case he becomes a he becomes like any civil disobedient in you know in history he becomes somebody who uses the example of the law he's breaking and the, the way that the law is coming down on him to try to make a point to reform those laws instead of going to one of the most repressive regimes in the country accepting their citizenship and by the way he's a citizen Wait, of except, Russia right I mean, now he didn't or, yeah he didn't but hold on, let me just finish in Russia point. he's a, no, but he is a citizen and he's accepting that citizenship. Am I, are we going to hear about him criticizing Russia, which murders its journalists explicitly? He, he has been highly critical of Russia's human rights abuses and violations consistently since he's been there. He's been highly critical of Russia. I'm, I'm actually genuinely curious about this. What has he said? He said that they have a terrible human rights abuse uh, history. And he said the United States will always be my home. He's made it very, very clear that he is willing to go to prison to come back here to stand trial so long as he's able to face a jury of his peers, which as an American citizen, I think is a completely reasonable thing to want. And in the setup that he has right now, if he cannot provide his public interest defense and the 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 only thing that the jury has to find or that a judge has to find behind closed doors is that national defense information was given to unauthorized people which clearly yes it was clearly what he did was illegal that's not the question here the question is was it in public interest did he have a legitimate motive to be a whistleblower or was it not and if the question is purely on legality, then I don't blame him for not wanting to come back. And I think that what he did was a net positive because I don't even, I can't even imagine what those surveillance programs would have looked like a decade later now if we never had the checks and balances of the American public realizing, holy shit, our rights are being violated by our own government. The checks and balances aren't, still aren't there. 
uh, because people don't care. The very data you talked about, I was to finish making that point earlier, when you ask people in the abstract, should the U.S. be spying on its own citizens, they say no. When they say, are you concerned it's spying on you, they say, I'm not concerned. Same poll. I don't care. I but I don't care if people don't care. I the Constitution still matters. Our rights still matter. Even if people don't care about their rights, they still matter, and I'm still going to defend them on their behalf. Yeah, but here's here's my final analysis. Like, unquestionably, nobody disputes that most of what he released is legal. He doesn't dispute that. Greenwald doesn't dispute that. That it's mm-hmm. legal, right now. Uh, the metadata program, courts have gone back and forth on this, and as it stands, it expanded in the period of time after he released it. So what do we have? We have potentially 1.7 million uh, documents about foreign surveillance, most of which is legal, that's been released, and a debate over the very program he was concerned about that has expanded in the years since he did that. And he's living under the cover of a repressive regime, claims to have destroyed Where do you want him to go? And we have... He should come back to the United States. Okay, and so would you be willing to give him a fair trial and to let him be in front of a jury of his peers? If I were unilaterally making this law, I absolutely would be for that. And I actually okay, think well, that I he think would that's, get that. I think he absolutely should have been afforded that right. I, I mean, I'm okay with not even pardoning him as long as he can actually provide his public defense or his public interest defense. I am all for him coming back. That is his own personal stance. But I would say to me, when I hear that this this, these programs and these surveillance programs have gotten potentially worse since his release. That's proof to me that they got worse even with the public scrutiny. And if there wasn't public scrutiny in the first place, I can't even imagine how extensive the surveillance would have been that we are under today. So I am sure that it's less bad than it would have been if there was no public interest and and no no public feedback on how their own data and their own communications were being abused. Yeah, I guess we'll I guess we'll have to see what happens from here. I think like to me I think what what it comes down to this is like an ongoing debate we have. Like I'm always skeptical about how people really care about their own privacy in this country. In some ways I wish they did care more. But I'm I'm waiting for the evidence of like the big protest, the big, you know, yeah, action I mean, by government, the, the big, you know, the big congressional move to safeguard the privacy rights of anybody, whether it's from private companies or the government. Well, I just my final say on that is I don't care if people don't care about their rights. I believe that they exist and they shouldn't be intruded upon. Doesn't matter to me whether or not they're even aware of that. I think those boundaries are important and they're there for a reason and they're in our constitution and Snowden swore an oath to our constitution and to defend it against all enemies foreign and domestic and to me that's what he did. Pulling away from the international scope here, uh, we flexed our sociopolitical muscles a little more with this segment that we did on dating apps, which might not feel like the most pressing issue, but I think it impacts a much broader swath of people than any of us really even anticipated before we started this segment. And it's an interesting look into this new world of how people find their partners. Yeah, well, I got a lot of questions about this one. And I agree with you. I, I think that people roll their eyes at the, the question of dating apps, but it, it is such a dominant part of our, our life right it's now. It's hugely consequential. It's yeah. fundamentally changing the way that people meet each other and, and the partnerships that happen and the social cohesion of our society in general, I think, too. Well, yeah, and I agree. I think part of the reason people don't cover this kind of stuff is because newsrooms are run by people who largely don't use them anymore. Mm. But... We did, and so mm-hmm. let's cut to the segment. Half of people in the US are single, and dating apps have been on the rise. 20 years ago, Wired Magazine said at this point, basically everybody will be using dating apps, and mm-hmm. you know, you know, trying to meet people in person will be akin to going to a library and just wandering the stacks, like something that you would do, but probably not that often. Uh, and you know, 10 years after that piece came out, Tinder was released. Mm-hmm. And we're now celebrating its 10th birthday, Ricky. Yeah. What do we know about dating apps and how they've changed our culture since well, Tinder came out? I think they're just the latest manifestation in a long history of people being very creative to patch the kind of loneliness that they feel. Um, 
there's like the earliest counterparts, I would say, are personal ads, which I found one from uh, 1695 in England that I thought was particularly interesting. A 30 year old who was looking for, quote, some good young gentlewoman with um, a fortune that it would be the equivalent of 300,000 Great Britain pounds today, which oh, is wow. interesting. So people have been fishing the market for a long time in public forums. I, people, and I feel like people were more transactional back in the day, at least from like pop I don't culture. Know. I mean, well, know? I think that dating apps have returned us back to the transactional yeah, we'll sort get to of that. thing. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> Different kinds you know? of transactions. <laughs> um, then we had students at Stanford in um, 1959 who used punch cards to kind of um, like use a very rudimentary computer to match people up. So we've had technology involved since then. Then there was the era of video cassette dating. In like the 80s, it was kind of trendy to do um, like videos of, hey, I'm so-and-so and this is what I like. And then you'd get a tape and like go through all your potential matches and tell them who you're interested in and you get to see them. And it's like, you know, it's like a proto dating app where here are a bunch of different candidates and then you, you see if you have a mutual attraction. But mm. um, the results are a little cringy, I would say. Can you be okay, early to bed, early to rise makes a woman healthy, wealthy and wise. That's why you're wiser than me. It's Stephen. Hi, I'm Maurice. I'm an executive by day and a wild man by night. Hi, my name is Monroe. Uh, you've probably already noticed that I have incredibly blue eyes. Hi, my name is Phil. Uh, most of my friends call me Big Phil. Okay, um, I like to talk to people uh, deep into the night. There's like a lot of stuff in dating apps today yeah. that is that is as cringe like as anything Like on else. Hinge, you can do these like voice responses now and I don't think I've seen that executed in a way that was not just so cringy ever once. Um, but then Match.com in 1995 was when it really became like like a digital era of dating, but that was still kind of weird and fringe and like stigmatized. Like, yeah, let me explain what you? it was viewed as back yeah. then. So there was like two things back at that time. And then that was when I was like in middle school going to high school, but that culture basically existed for probably the next 10 years mm -hmm. where you had, you know, there's some pop culture you know, references like you've got mail that I thought that made it, you know, more um, acceptable and, you know, Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, et cetera. But by and large, if you like I met somebody online at that point, you're probably older, right? It's mm -hmm. like associated with more middle-aged people who hadn't found anybody. Yeah. And it's kind of taboo. Like it's like the last resort. Yeah, like people thing. now, you see your parents, you're like, how did you meet? We met online. That's mm -hmm. like my brother, my sister, right? So it's, you know, the it's like a thing that you just straight up say to people without yeah. any worry about how you're gonna be judged. Back then, you'd probably come up with some like alternate story mm -hmm. about how you met. But I think things started changing in the early 2000s around this yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I would say even a couple of years ago, I heard people saying like, oh yeah, like we met at the grocery store. Right, they'd, like, tell some you, people like, still yeah. do that, but. Yeah, um, you know. but today I think, especially because of the pandemic, um, like rates are through the roof dating online especially when you're locked down and you can't even meet people in person is just so ubiquitous and not a not a taboo anymore um 30 of u.s adults say that they've used a dating app and within the 18 to 29 age demographic it's 48 percent, so almost half and it even spans up it's only 13 percent, but senior citizens 13 percent of them have used one too which is i wonder if my grandma has you my know, dad has ourtime.com my dad definitely <laughs> he'll kill has. me ourtime.com for golden oldies my dad has already married and divorced somebody he met on an app um, oh, wow. and that was his That's efficient. fourth marriage mm. to a third person do that math at home uh, and now he's dating somebody else who actually is quite wonderful maybe this will be his fifth but yeah it affects everybody my grandma actually was funny she like snuck off at our last family gathering to talk to her boyfriend and we all went nuts and, and she got really embarrassed about it but i think like the history of this stuff is really interesting because it's been playing out before our eyes yeah like, the you know we think about tinder as being the revolutionary technology and that's what this segment is really you know, what got us to talk about yeah. this is that we just passed their 10th birthday. Yeah. But what I found interesting is that Grindr was actually the technology that was the most revolutionary. And it mm -hmm. came out a few years before Tinder. And it was the first one to truly use GPS. Yeah. And that Tinder's real revo um, revolutionary feature was that it was the swiping. Yeah. And then you just saw an explosion of new technologies after that that I think are still dominant t today. So Grindr was 2009, that was GPS, Tinder, Swipe 2012, Bumble, which was a Tinder founder, 
uh, started to say like the women have to initiate the, the mm -hmm. conversation hinge which is really popular here in new york especially among like you know higher yeah. income populations limits the amount of people you could see a day there's field which is like you know if you're you want to be more explicit about your sexual preferences or alternative relationship models and then you've got stuff like raya which is like exclusivity kind of like the mm -hmm. soho house of dating but Ricky, there there are more niche dating apps out there, aren't there? <laughs> <laughs> there are. There's some really interesting ones. Um, just to name a few, gluten-free singles, um, tall friends. Maybe I should sign up for that one. Our time for old people like my dad. He's He had some luck on there. Um, what the is that one called? Our time? Ourtime.com. Yeah. Um, the right stuff, which we had talked about. Oh, if yeah. your political orientations are the most important thing or meet my dog, you can use your pet as your kind of icebreaker there. Mm. There are um, definitely a lot of crevices, but I would also- Can I add a few? There was yeah. some that I found here I really loved. So you've got s'more, which is non-superficial. I think this is a smart one where you, before you match, it's kind of like love is blind for mm. dating apps. You can't see the face until you match, which I find fascinating. Mm. Uh, there's Vegly, plant-based. There's Newit, with his, which is an astrology match. Taste Bud, which is music match. Kippo, which is for gamers. Bristler, for guys with beards. Uh, and Thursday, which is I think the most interesting, which is you can only match one day of the week and go out one day of the week, I, I pre presume is Thursday. But the one I love, which is an oldie but goodie, uh, I spent a lot of time in the South and I would you know, be in random motel rooms and I would get these ads for farmersonly.com. This is the worst date I've ever been on. I bet my shoes cost more than your stupid boat does. I am not touching your worm. No more blind dates for me. Something to me. Get off, get off, get off, get off. Whoa! You don't have to be lonely at farmersonly.com. City folks just don't get it. So if, if people are not watching on YouTube, essentially there's two people on a bad date on a boat and some other woman like uses her fishing rod to pull one another woman off the boat. Mm -hmm. But the thing I love about Farmers Only is their jingle, which I have not gotten out of my head ever since like probably 15 years ago. Have they just been ads. trolling us? Like how can this actually be a thing? People use it because I think this gets to like a very sincere part of dating apps is that there's no one story of dating apps. And that's what the data says. It's like yeah. if you live in a rural area, the amount of serendipitous encounters that you have are very limited. Mm -hmm. So Farmers Only, although hilarious and very self-aware, they're serving a real need, but that goes beyond farmers, right? All the stuff I talked about, they're yeah. funny, but they're also for real. Like if you're somebody who does take astrology seriously, like that app is gonna be really important. Or if you're, you know, religious or ethnic identity mm -hmm. is important to you or your hobbies, like this is where I think the real power and promise of dating apps comes from is that it allows people to differentiate, find people that yeah. that really help them fulfill like themselves in whatever they, they want. And I think that's one of the reasons why if you parse through the data, for instance, like the LGBTQ community, mm -hmm. use the apps more, they're more positive about the apps than anybody more. else. And yeah. that's, I think, in part why Grindr was like the first major app to explode is because it's a smaller dating pool. It's more difficult to, and there's also stigma that LGBT people face. And so it's easier to have a forum where that's kind of controlled for. Yeah, or there's um, a collective illusion around it, right? Like this is, gets to like, I don't know yeah. how big or small the pool is, but for sure the perception in a lot of places in yeah. America was and, and still continues to be that it doesn't exist if you live in certain county, yeah. in certain places. And so if there's a tool that allows you to sort of bypass the social stigma mm -hmm. uh, and not have to worry about the discrimination that comes from that, but also like anybody else, you want as many options as you possibly can have, like that well, is I powerful, think, you know? Yeah, I mean, I would say that that there's a kind of like a curve where there becomes too many options yeah, so and then people become this. paralyzed. This is called the paradox of choice. The paradox of choice, right? yeah. So, yeah, explain this concept for um, our listeners. So that's a term that's coined by Barry Schwartz who wrote a book about it. But essentially like to boil down the theory in a non-dating context, um, the reason that he kind of posits that someone would prefer a Trader Joe's sort of shopping experience where if you want ketchup, there are like three ketchups of different varieties and those are your options and you pick between them and then you move on versus you go to like some big grocery chain and there's 50 and right. you might think that you'd rather have 50 because 
who wouldn't want to have more options and more choice, but then you spend more time thinking about it and you're less satisfied with your choice in the end. And so he has, um, his theory has been kind of applied to dating apps and he has agreed that there's a certain type of personality that he calls the maximizer who kind of has the feeling in the back of their head that like, well, the the more perfect person could be around the corner and the, or the more perfect catch up is right. on the next shelf or whatever. So I think that there's, there's definitely a personality type in like the the ample availability of people like no partner is ever perfect everyone requires compromise but i think that there's an incentive with dating apps especially in urban areas that there's always another option if right. someone kind of like some something peeves you or you kind of get the ick a little bit then you can just be like oh whatever like right. i'll just like spark a conversation with this match that i haven't talked to in a while or whatever yeah i think that's definitely a huge trade-off and a potential downside and i think something that you know like a lot of things that technology revolutionizes is that new generations have to learn to show a certain amount of self-restraint and, and yeah. set up a new set of values that older generations probably didn't have to worry about as much and this is related to Another problem with dating apps, or at least a challenge with them, is the inequality of dating apps, mm -hmm. right? So there's interesting data about the economics of dating apps, right? So they're, they're actually more more heavily utilized on the lower end of the socioeconomic scale mm -hmm. and actually more of the harassing behavior and also like either the sending of um, unsolicited nudes or straight up harassment, all that, uh, you know, self-reporting of that behavior is way, way high. Sometimes two or three times as high on the lower end of the so socioeconomic scale. It's also scale. much higher in lower age demographics, particularly among young women. So that mm. might be associated. Yeah, you might, might not be able to, yeah, yeah, you might not be able to parse that out necessarily. Yeah, that's interesting. But, but the, the really fascinating part of this, it gets to like the sort of, the, the paradox of choice part of it is like a cousin of that is the fact that there's like such an inequality of likes yeah. where, uh, particularly among men, but this is also a phenomenon among women, uh, there is a small percentage, like the top 10% of men uh, get an outsized amount of likes. And I'm not just talking mm -hmm. about like what you would naturally think. You know, Scott Galloway uh, ran some of these numbers and he cites these in his new book. He talked about them on Bill Maher recently. Whenever technology comes into an industry, it consolidates it. Mating has been consolidated in the worst way. 50 men on Tinder, 50 women. 46 of the women show all of their attention to just four men, leaving 46 men pursuing just four women. If if mating was a country, it would be more unequal than Venezuela. We have huge mating inequality. E-commerce was disastrous for retail. Social media was disastrous for everybody. Online dating is disastrous for mating and for men. I think this is a phenomenon that's true of both. If you look at the data, it still is a crisis among women, the inequality. It is particularly pronounced among men. It's I'm not sure why it is though. Like what's your sense of like why that problem is more pronounced among men on the on these dating apps than women? I don't think it's a really kosher explanation, but I think that women um, probably tend to look like hyper analyze matches and people on these apps and scrutinize them more and men tend to be more indiscriminate in their yeah. dating than women are and i think yeah. that's just a reality that there's one um stat that's that's crazy to me that women tend to rate men as worse looking than average 80 percent of the time there's also like <laughs> the majority of women will filter for six foot plus on dating apps which is like a much smaller portion of the population right. and like also like i'm five nine i think i'm allowed to have some sort of metric there but i like my mom's five two and she's like i won't date a man that's like less than six feet tall right like i don't know like there's just we can filter for people with these super myopic um completely superficial qualities that if we met someone in person you might say like oh that doesn't really matter to me because i know this about them now. right and it incentivizes us to just reduce people to look at them as commodities to cut someone off just based on like a year of their age or an inch of their height or a mile in your radius. I mean, I think that there is there are certainly benefits, but I also think there are considerable downsides, especially for generations that have only known the 10 years past Tinder, right. including my own. And I think, you know, we're the loneliest generation. We're the most depressed generation. We're having the least sex despite having all the tools in front of us. It's really hard to talk about this. Like, I think it's Dak Shepard or somebody talked about how the most common form of discrimination is, is looks discrimination mm -hmm. in our society. It's like a thing that's just, you're allowed to say, like everybody, you sit around and, and it crosses political di uh, dynamics. You just sit around and be like, he's ugly, she's ugly, this person's good looking or not good looking. And it's as immutable as anything, 
right? Most of the time, there are certain mm-hmm. things you could do to look better or worse according to whatever society standards that you live in. But uh, you know, like a lot of things, it's genetic. It has to do with environment and things like that. Now, I'm not saying that we should like police speech on this. I'm just saying it's something worth considering when we talk about these dating apps. Yeah, um, it's definitely a lost ism. And yeah. to kind of clarify just how how superficial people interact on these dating apps, which is, you know, you need to be efficient if you have a million options. For but, sure. Um, the average woman spends 3.19 seconds before swiping right and the average man 5.7 seconds. So there's no way that you can holistically analyze a so human it, being. So it implies that women are more looks oriented than men? Is um, that basically? I don't, I, I don't know. Yeah, that, that would I mean, be the opposite of what they I think. Spend a li- they take a little more time before they swipe left than right. men. So they're less likely to like instantaneously reject someone. Yeah. But if they like someone, they're just, they're sure of it. So I suppose so. You did a crowdsourcing on your Twitter of comments asking people what's your experience been and i'm going to read one that somebody wrote to you i want to get your response this is michael ginsburg uh he said dating apps are especially bad for men because they discourage healthy risk taking that becomes more necessary later in life if you can't ask a girl out on a date without an app you won't be able to ask her to marry you or have children you won't learn that life skill now that what he said could be true of men or women but what's your reaction but i do agree that that is a skill set that you need agree with that 100 percent, because it's like dating's become kind of like safe and sanitized which in some ways is good because you know you don't want people just like catcalling right and left all the time but you know i think for a generation especially of young people like having that that safety net or being able to hide behind a screen all the time is not only isolating like it does stunt your your social skills, your development, your risk-taking tolerance. I do think that's a healthy thing. And I I, I wonder how that will impact my generation in the long term, for yeah. sure. And you know, there's this uh, Israeli sociologist, Ava Luz, who says that like these apps are using emotions as commodities. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of writing about this, just about how like just the amount of emotional weight our society is putting into these apps where they're like a you know billions of interactions on a given week and all the money that they're putting in i mean they're capitalizing on loneliness right but in the end my final analysis i think these are a net positive like any other technology Mm -hmm. we talk about you can't put the genie back in the bottle so the question is how do we develop a set of norms around this kind of stuff and i think like you know ghosting breadcrumbing, all these terms that like some of them are relatively new. Like you hear people talking about it, like how do you engage with people in a respectful way on these apps? I think most people who've been around long enough have made a lot of mistakes on the apps and have learned to sort of either be better people or not. Uh, And I think like you're gonna see more books, more conversations, you know, more apps that I think also use the technology as a constraint like Thursday, (laughs) which might not be the constraint I would adopt, but I do think the technology, like people will start flocking to technologies that fit their values better. I think there will also be a pendulum swing with this, especially post pandemic. I, I think it went to an extreme. And at least anecdotally in my generation, there's like a h- sudden huge emphasis on like meet cutes and meeting people in a normal, natural, mm. authentic way that I think is being celebrated again. So I wouldn't be surprised if we pull back at least to a certain degree from yeah. these technologies. I think they've seen their their heyday. One question that I've been thinking about a lot is the relationship between these apps and marriage rates, right? Mm-hmm. Like marriage rates are at an all-time low in this country right now. And you know, you have a lot of data that shows that people are successfully meeting their husbands, yeah. wives, significant others in on these apps. But there are a lot of other people who are blaming the apps on the fact that people are getting married later. Mm. What do you think the answer is here? I mean, I don't think there's ever a way to parse out one data point or like one cause for something like that. I think there's a ton of cultural things that are at play here. But I do think the fact that you can, like I think the paradox of choice is a huge part of that because commitment and settling down when you always have a hundred more options just like within an hour you could probably reach a hundred people i think that's part of it but i mean there there's there are considerable statistics as of 2019 12 percent of american adults ended up in a relationship or um were married from a dating app and that's up from just three percent in 2013 so it's definitely facilitating a larger portion of the marriages that are happening right but it's still among dating app users only 39 percent said that they've either been in a committed relationship or have gotten married from dating apps it's slightly higher in college grads at 44 percent mm. But that's a relationship or getting married, and right. it's still less than half of people. Yeah. So I'm not really convinced that, I mean, obviously there's it's going to replace meeting people in person, but I feel like 
probably the people who are getting married off of dating apps are the same people that would have been getting married in general. Like they're probably more commitment oriented. I think that dating apps probably, the reason that that 39% is so low is that it's attracting people who are more exploratory in nature. And there's, I mean, there's different apps for different purposes. And I think that's why Tinder no longer has this like market monopoly because it became like so hypersexualized. And so like the swipe feature is so like just appearance and nothing else. And it's like almost like gambling, like, Yeah, I, I think that that's well, why. Yeah, there's all like, those studies about the randomness of gambling, and, right? That that's like one of the, the sort of dopamine. Yeah, and you don't it. know if you're going to match with someone right. or yeah. So and there's like there's a bunch of kind of conspiracy theories in the ether about like how they suppress likes at certain points to get people to come back, or they start like mm. popping up notifications, and that's just a theory. But right. Tinder has been notoriously secretive about their algorithms, yeah. and I wouldn't be surprised because they're raking in so much money because people are lonely and paying for it. Yeah, and I think I think there's a different story for different types of people here, right? Mm-hmm. So I think about my brother who is like incredibly, sh- my brother and I are probably great case studies here. I'm a maximizer. So I'm one of those people who like is gonna be like, all right, like we're gonna find the exact right person, mm-hmm. and kind of happy being, you know, on my own and like don't feel the pressure in any way mm-hmm. and like don't have problems meeting people. So to me, I'm like, a different kind of user of these types of technology. My brother is very shy. And mm-hmm. for a long time had a, he's the person who that barrier to entry, when you meet somebody, for him, that is a, like a, an extremely stress inducing encounter, go, trying to go to that bar, trying to have that conversation, mm-hmm. dealing with the embarrassment of rejection. To him, that's like as frightening as any interaction you have. And he met his wife online. And to me, that I would count as a win for the dating apps in the, mm-hmm. in the marriage column. Meaning that is a marriage that might not have ever happened Yeah, although- if it wasn't for the app. You know? I would say, like, how old was he when he was on apps when he was... Probably early 30s, I would guess, is when he Because I would her. say, yeah. like, if you're... I, I wouldn't apply that same argument to, like, a shy 18-year-old or 20-year-old who's who hasn't, like, developed... I mean, I'm a super introverted, shy person, and I'm doing a job that's like, requires me to be out and about and, right. like, putting my face out there. And that's only because I've done it and kind of forced myself to do it. And I think there's a way where if you... I think they could become a coping mechanism. And for people who are still developing their character, who still need to have those rejection experiences in order to kind of pick themselves up. And then they do actually meet someone and maybe it doesn't work out, but then they have a little more bounce in their step going forward. I think it could stunt people's emotional development. And that concerns me. One last question for you though, before we move off of this is just the mental health aspects of Mm -hmm. this debate. Just run us through what we know about how these apps are affecting just the mental well-being of of young people or just people in general. So 45% of people using these apps say that they feel frustrated by them um, versus just 28% who say that they make them feel more hopeful. 35% say they're more pessimistic because of them. 25% say they're more insecure as a result of them. Um, And in terms of mental health, there's one study from the University of North Texas that I think is revealing that shows that dating app users have generally considerably lower self-esteem and psychological well-being all all over and lower satisfaction with their bodies and their looks. Hmm. And so... I don't know if that's a cause and effect sort of thing, um, but it, I mean, it's hard to kind of, like it's correlated, but it might be that if you're insecure, you might want to date online more so right. than the other way around. But I would say in general, particularly among young people, I think it's like a self-perpetuating loneliness sort of factor. And studies have shown that there is a feedback loop between like kind of um, compulsively going through dating apps and feeling lonely and yeah. then just kind of cycling through that forever. And if that's all that you really know about the dating world, then... Yeah. Well, dating apps are social media in a, in a way, yeah. right? Like it's it's a cousin of all the data that we've been going through before. Well, uh, I think this is, you know, my, my prediction is, you know, we had that wired 20 years on, 10 years after yeah, Tinder. Yeah, that one was eerie, that yeah, quote. Was exactly like, 20 really, years. Yeah. Uh, I think 10 years from now, it's very likely we won't be talking about Tinder, but the effects of Tinder, the marriages, the kids that came up because of it, the culture yeah. that it created. And, and that's true of Grindr. That's true of a lot of these technologies. Yeah. I think that the, the effects we'll, will be with us for a while. Or we'll know, be living forever. in the Black Mirror episode. Do you, do you watch Black Mirror? I've only seen like one or two of them. There's one, I think it's called Hang the DJ, where it's like they're in this simulated, or they're, they're in this like weird little bubble relationship thing and they're in the simulation together and you don't realize that they're in a simulation until the end. And it's like this dystopian thing where they like 
upload people's minds into this thing to test whether or not they'll try to break out of the simulation and huh. then it says that they're a match or not it's it's I, i'm explaining it really poorly hmm. but there are black mirror dystopian like compatibility factor sort of huh. things that i think we could head down if algorithms are what is deciding who our most suitable matches are so all right i recommend well, that what episode a, what a depressing end to, <laughs> to such a great subject well, in our final segment, we definitely do a lot of Supreme Court stuff on this podcast. You know, some may say we do too much, but I think one segment that rises above all of them and that's totally accessible to people who don't want to dive into all the legalese mm-hmm. was this segment we did about whether the Supreme Court is too partisan. And what I love about this segment is it just gets right to the chase because so many of the debates around every little decision are what are the motivations of the justices? Are they just political actors? And yeah. we really dug into the data on this segment. Yeah, and some specific reform questions as well that I think um, don't get enough attention typically. So I'm really proud of this segment too. All right, Supreme Court. Ricky, where do we want to start here? There's like so much emotion around the Supreme Court. I think they, their term just began a couple weeks mm-hmm. ago. Uh, I would say tensions are high. Yeah, well, last week we spoke about um, Obama's interview on Pod Save America, and he was asked whether he'd be open to Supreme Court reform, and he said yes. And I think that's an interesting kind of angle to delve into this conversation with because his reason for saying that he is open to it in a nonpartisan way, like he would like very careful and thoughtful reform, is because the public trust of the Supreme Court has eroded so dramatically. And I think that it's important to look at the data of just how typical Americans feel and only 47% uh, say they have a great or fair deal of trust, which is a 20-point drop from two years ago, which is staggering. Um, Their approval rating over the past two decades went from 60% to 40%. 47% of Americans, so almost half, see it as a partisan body. 61% believe that politics are their principal motivation as as Supreme Court justices, and only 32% think they lead with the law, which is staggering. And I think that this is a clearly like such an important institution to maintain public trust in and if this if that erodes i think it it could be dangerous so i am actually like on the same page as obama here yeah i think the public has made up their mind about this it seems right and and i wouldn't say the supreme court is the only institution that's seeing like widespread you know, public mistrust. I think most institutions, governmental or not, are seeing an erosion of trust. Yeah, but, but historically, it's it's kind of been like a, a figurehead of something that you can trust because right. it's tied to the Constitution. And I think that losing that sort of like anchor feeling about the government while the Congress and the president can be right. like very, very partisan all the time is especially concerning. Yeah, they have a unique issue with the lifetime appointments, right? Because like if we're losing trust in Congress, we got two years, you know, you do, you know, keep voting them out of office for president four years, right? You're governor every four years. Now, well, let's keep that two year number in our the back of our heads as I go through this history, because I'm going to come back to that number, because I don't think that two year distrust number is accidental. But let's answer the first question which is, is the Supreme Court more partisan today than it's ever been before? And is it even partisan? And I think my take on this is that the Supreme Court has always been political, highly political in various points in our history, but how it's been political has been has changed over time, and it's really important. So like mm-hmm. back in the day, the Supreme Court justices and John Jay, our first Supreme Court justice, you know, was both a political and legal advisor to the president, but he also served as the ambassador to Great Britain. It was just a, at the same time he was serving on the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. So this is a very different kind of world we were living in. Um, you know, John Marshall was an avid, uh, you know, political observer and commentator on federalist politics. If you read the Hamilton biography that was made into the musical, there's just like tons of John Marshall references where you're like, wait, this is the same guy who was on the Supreme Court. He was like a political activist yeah. at the time. And you go through history all the way through Lincoln's time, his own campaign manager served on the Supreme Court. Like these people were very political. And this culminated in Abe Fortas, who was basically, I thought this was a metaphor until I looked into this. He literally had a direct line to the president president where they would communicate regularly about yeah. both legal issues and not. Some of this stuff was above board in the sense that it was like they were treating the Supreme Court like the general counsel, where they'd be like, hey, Ricky, like um, I was thinking of passing this law. Uh, can you just tell me whether it would be legal or not? Which we could debate whether that's appropriate or not. But then some of it is just 
tons of ongoing inappropriate communication. Yeah. That was a different kind of bad. I think where we are today is, is different. Well, I think there's two separate questions, which is, is the confirmation process political? And then is the way that they're voting political? Yeah. And I would say that there's like, I think we have this idea that there's this golden era that we can look back to that back in the day, it was this perfect, um, completely non-political body, but that's certainly not been the case. And when Jefferson won the presidential election in 1800, Congress passed the Judiciary Act specifically because they were concerned that he would put an ideological person into the court and um, essentially pack the court. And they removed actually one seat, it was six, and they made it five because there was a vacancy and they didn't want him to fill it. And then as Adams was leaving office, he filled basically every single judicial seat that he could in like the first midnight appointments with kind of the partisan federalist concern at play. So I think that it's it's important to note that pretty much from the beginning, this was a relatively ill-defined institution in terms of what the Constitution actually says about how it should operate and what its role is and whether it's even the arbiter of what the Constitution means, which is something that came came to be after the court was established. And several years in, Jefferson thought that the president could just decree that, which is right. crazy in, in retrospect to think about. So I think it's important when we talk about this to realize that a lot of the things that we take for granted about how the Supreme Court works, including how many seats there are, um, is just completely a norm that's like layers and layers of precedent that like yes it's important to respect precedent but that doesn't mean that if it's fundamentally crippling an institution we can't talk about how to reform it right and there was actually this really great debate uh that harvard law school recently put on where they had a couple people on one side saying hey the supreme court is political and a couple people on the other side saying it's not uh i do believe it's political but i thought the best argument against my position came from this guy I went to law school with who was probably the smartest guy I went to law school with. I'm not particularly close with him, but this guy named Will Bode, who uh, is a professor at the University of Chicago. The majority of the court has a strong view about, about what the law is and how it works. So one, the fact that the court is committed to law over politics actually makes it seem more radical than previous courts, not less because it means that the court is less inclined to just kind of tack toward the center in high profile cases or to use public opinion as a as a anchor or a bellwether because there's there's something else law. I think you can you can accept what Will is saying here and say all right, yeah, maybe these justices are not motivated by politics. I could debate him on that because I do think if you look at the Kavanaugh hearing for example, he explicitly said um, about abortion for example, Roe that it was precedent on precedent highly um, suggestive that he would not vote to overturn it. And Susan Collins claims that she, he told her behind closed doors that he explicitly would not overturn Roe, but then he did very quickly. To me, that feels like a very political act and a partisan act to get um, appointed that feels to me like you're playing politics. But putting that all aside, let's assume everybody is above board and not partisan who's on the court. Their intentions, once they're on the court, are irrelevant compared to the intentions of the people selecting them. And that gets to the problem yeah. that we have today. Like the problem is of selection, not of the motivations of the people. Once I think it's selection and confirmation. Yeah. Because if you look at the history of how the confirmation votes have shaken out, it's only really relatively recently that we have like the clean party line numbers of yeses and noes. Like if you look at Trump and Biden's appointees, the number of noes in the Senate were 47, 48, 48, and 45. And if you just go back to Obama and Bush, it's 37, 31, 42, 22. So like already just in the past couple of years, it's like much more a you vote with your team sort of attitude. And Reagan got Kennedy, Scalia, and O'Connor all in unanimously without a single no vote. So this, I think that's also an important layer as well, is that it's a relatively new attitude for Congress to just think that it's a kind of given that you vote based on whether the president of your party appointed someone. And I think that's also something to take into consideration as well. Yeah, and that comes as litmus tests, right? So people who are watching YouTube could see this, but uh, I'll describe it for people listening on the podcast. This was a, a table that Vox put together and essentially shows that starting in around the late 1960s, we start seeing a trickle of litmus tests from the political parties over things like abortion and gun rights, et cetera. And then it, they start to explode in the 2000s. And as you see the explosion of litmus tests, there's this other chart, which is from 538, you know, basically throughout the 60s, all the way to the early 2000s, you're seeing almost no completely polarized Supreme Court decisions. Yeah. I mean, you always see some kind of mix of people from one party or the other in nearly every decision. We're talking about- Yeah, and hovering around 40% of unanimous decisions as well. Yeah, the and then you see at 
basically over the past couple of years, really just the past two to three years, you see a dramatic drop in unanimous decisions and a huge spike to now we're at 21% mm-hmm. of decisions that are polarized. So this is not accidental. And that gets back to that two-year number that you're talking about. Like, why is the electorate all of a sudden two years ago getting really uh, you know, suspicious of the Supreme Court and starting to see it as a partisan institution? It's because they have become a more partisan institution over the past few years. And it's not accidental. It's explicitly what the U.S. senators are saying when they're picking their justices. So to me, that that seems like pretty open shut. I think, though, what do we do about it, I think, is the tougher question. There's a couple different ideas, one of it, which is court packing, which I think like the name kind of confuses people, but literally is just increasing the number of seats, which it, we changed it um, in like frequently six times and up until um, 1869 is when we landed on nine seats. And that's not in the constitution, that number. It's we could potentially expand it or shrink it. And I think that's probably the easiest sort of thing to reform. Whereas I do think the lifetime appointment thing is probably the more concerning thing to me. I don't really have a problem with the number nine and right. having people cycle through a little more often. Um, I think that's the reason why, you know, I mean, it's it seems so arbitrary that you someone needs to die for yeah. you to, if you're a super successful judge or like a perfect appointee, like someone just has to die at the right time. And you're almost definitely going to be someone in your 50s. Whereas, you know, there might be someone that's more qualified in their 70s that could serve for 10 years. Right. And so I think it, it, it narrows the pool considerably. You have presidents who just randomly happen to win because a ton of people die when they're in office, which seems right. like a kind of arbitrary measure. But I would say, that's the harder thing to fix because right. it is in the constitution that the lifetime appointment, so long as they're in good behavior. Yeah, you also have this phenomenon of people retiring and we, we can't get in their heads and say for sure that they're retiring because they want somebody of the same party to take their seat. But Except have, that pretty much for sure. Yeah, that's you have Breyer I mean. and Kennedy most recently doing yeah. this. Now, like for, again, I don't, they didn't say that's why they did it, but it seems suspicious I mean, timing, right? Uh, so and, and and people activists were explicitly calling for it, and people so, would give them hell if they had right. retired like during Trump's presidency, right? Yeah, or vice versa, right? So, uh, so you have the explicit political stuff happening right before our eyes. The litmus test also coincides with the change from the the David Souter, Kennedy type, Byron White on the other side, who would be nominated by one party but vote against the sort of ideological litmus tests that they yeah. put out there. Where like we, this is not like a legal podcast, but essentially the conservatives have uh, kind of coalesced around originalism uh, as their judicial philosophy, which is basically saying like the Constitution is what it was when it was ratified, and that has all sorts of like what that means is a huge debate. And then you have the quote unquote living Constitution, which is what Democrats tend to support. Which what they mean by that is that you can kind of like bring like modern need the modern the needs of modern society to the text and and in their interpretation that means things like Roe can stand even though the explicit text of the constitution doesn't support that that's essentially been the, the the kind of lens that each political party brings to this but you're right like the the the, the litmus t- the uh the size of the court is is an issue the but it is the, i don't think it's necessarily an yeah. issue in and of itself, but it's an issue when you have lifetime appointment and right. such a small number of people. And you're seeing people serve longer than ever, both because yeah. of uh, the length of time they spend on this earth, yeah. but also because for one reason or another, people used to be more willing to leave the court for reasons, mm-hmm. and they don't do that anymore, maybe because of the stakes of it all. But there is one interesting proposal here by Stephen Calabrese and James Lindgren of uh, Northwestern University School, uh, who propose that a way around the constitution as they see it and i'm not an expert to know whether this would stand legally but a ton of people on both sides of the conservative and liberal spectrum have signed on to this legal scholars essentially what they're saying is we can create a system where we appoint judges and justices and they serve for 15 years and then they roll off and become senior justices and then we replace those people every 15 years so it both has term limits and uh, Wait, what does a the, senior justice mean? So a senior justice is what Breyer is right now and David Souter is right now. They're justices who had previously served as active justices on the court, but they have now been like, there's a, a confirmed replacement for them. But they still get a clerk. They still like can write scholarship, yada, yada, yada. Now, what Calabresi and James Lindgren seem to think is you could turn them into senior justices and they can sit in lower court hearings so that they're 
you know, they're part of district court, uh, you know, panels and appeals court panels, et cetera. And, and that would bring an added benefit. There's a crisis of not enough judges in this country at the federal level. So this could help solve that. Now, I once again, I have no idea whether this would stand, but it is worth saying that the United States is unique among uh, democracies in Western countries in having lifetime appointments. It's even unique amongst the United States. I think there's only like one or two states, Rhode Island being one of them, where you can appoint where, where they appoint justices for life. So this mm. is pretty unique what we have. Yeah, I could even see a reform that kind of ties the appointment process directly to the democratic process of electing a president where every term a president appoints one person regardless of whether someone died or not. And right. then that way the voters, at, like through the proxy of having voted for a president for one term and even if they vote for them for a second term, have at least some say in the balance of the court based on who they they elected president, I think that would be probably more logical just because it doesn't make any sense that if you're a president who's just there for four years and it happens to be that you hit the timing right, you have an outsized effect on how the court could run for decades down the line. Like it just, it seems so arbitrary to me that yeah. even as somebody who is generally a very traditional kind of like, I like to respect the norms and the precedents and I don't like burning things down and starting things over. I think right. this is a place that really is ripe for reform. You have also this weird, I, I guarantee we're gonna see this moment in our lifetime where you could see people nearly incapacitated who will refuse to leave the court uh, during yeah. the Obama administration. There are some per things out there like internationally that we could point to. Germany, for example, requires a two thirds vote for a justice. Uh, Spain and Portugal require a super majority. Mm -hmm. On, in theory, I'm kind of down with that, but I think in our crippled system, that just means we would never get anybody approved. I just think yeah. that they would just be like, all right, like we're just never gonna, like we'd rather have whoever benefits from whatever the current composition is when somebody passes away is just gonna be like, we're we're just not gonna go along with this vote. Yeah, know? I think also just like probably another reform that's the easiest to institute would be to increase transparency in the court, which I think is one of the reasons why people's trust is eroding considerably. Um, they banned broadcasting um, their arguments in 1972, and there's a 65% public support to um, broadcast. Yeah, um, all we get is the audio, right? Yeah, now, not the video. and we also, and sometimes we'll get transcripts that can be hugely faulty, which we had like the Gorsuch hundreds of thousands versus hun or hundreds or thousands of people mm -hmm. have died from COVID or whatever. And like right. he got like so much, so much hell for saying something that it right. seems like potentially he didn't say. And so I think, you know, if taxpayers are funding this institution, they should have the right to just at least understand what's going on behind closed doors. And I think that's probably the easiest thing to right. fix. Yeah, um, and and it's a popular reform. Yeah, we did a whole segment of, um, of this a while ago about ethics of the Supreme Court and how they don't really have a uh, binding code of ethics that could prevent things yeah. like conflicts of interest, which is obviously a raging debate around Jenny Thomas and, and Clarence Thomas. And we right already now. have that for federal judges, um, yeah. most federal judges at the moment. And 72% of the public uh, believe that that would be uh, an easy reform to make. And I think those two are probably more practical than the whole process we would have to go through to change the number of seats or change the length of appointment. But at the very least, those would be steps in the right direction. Well, that is some of the best of what we've covered this year. And if you have any input on what you'd like to see us start to talk about in the new year, please do give us a call. We have a voicemail line. You can reach us at 321-200-0570. And we will be back with regularly scheduled programming next week, you know, Tuesday, Thursday episodes like we normally do. So hope you're staying safe out there. and We'll talk to you next week. Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks, research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra, studio support and video editing by Moyo Adeolu, editing and sound design by Joe Engelbrecht and Monica Espedia.